0: I want to thank you for being here tonight. It's great to see each one of you, and I appreciate so much your presence. I know on a hot evening, it uh, is perhaps easy to stay home and stay out of the heat and kick back and relax, but you've chosen to be here, and I certainly appreciate that because I think it shows your interest in spiritual things and things that ultimately will endure forever. You know, this life is fleeting. This life is passing, and of course, the things that many times we hold so dear and near In this life, really, at the end of the day, and at the end of life's little day, really means so little. And so you're here tonight, we're going to study God's word together, and certainly we believe that what we're going to study is indeed the mind of God. You know, I think we're blessed tonight that we can actually hear the words that God had in his mind. You know, a long time ago, God placed man in the Garden of Eden, and God began to speak, To man at that point. God gave them the rules, the laws, so that they might be protected. And of course, so that they might come to know him. Man violated that. Man still violates God's laws today. In fact, it seems that the history of our world is a violation of God's law. But we're here tonight, we're going to look at some things that the word of God says. We're going to look at some things that the Apostle Paul has to say, actually, in the book of Ephesians. And of course, Paul, as he begins to speak the mind of God in the book of Ephesians, talks about how God predestined a great plan so that we might be saved. You know, the book of Ephesians is one of those books that I love to preach from because it's a book that really, I think, cuts through all of the nonsense and gives us a theological perspective, a clear perspective of really God's love for us. You know, in chapter 1, Paul begins in uh, Ephesians and speaks of God's plan that he, in his mind, long before he created man, had. And of course, he created man, he placed man in the Garden of Eden. Man sinned and fell from that initial state of covenant relationship. And even from that point on, God began to prepare the coming messiah. In fact, one of the greatest passages, and I think all the Old Testament, is Genesis 3.15, where God says that the seed of woman, that's Christ, the seed of woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. That's the devil. And of course, we know that that happened at the cross because Jesus, the seed of woman, born of a virgin, born of Mary, when he died, Satan had bruised him. But when Jesus arose, he crushed the head. He crushed, as it were, the main power of Satan. You see, Satan's always been about death. The devil has always been about destruction, but Jesus overcame that. He overcame death, Hades, and the grave, and he arose again the third day. So the first chapter of the book of Ephesians, Paul speaks of this great plan, this providential plan where he predestined those that would be in Christ They would be saved. And then in chapter 2, you remember that Paul speaks of the grace of God. That very famous passage where Paul says, By grace are you saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we don't have some responsibility as individuals. But it is truly by God's grace that we are saved. Now, grace is God's unmerited favor. In other words, grace is something that we don't deserve. It's something that we did nothing to earn. And, of course, when we look at Ephesians 2, verse 8, in the context of Ephesians 1, it's this great plan that Paul is still speaking of. It's the grace that God, long before we were around, so we can't claim any, uh, any, any credit in it. It is that plan that God set in motion out of graciousness, out of pure love for us So that we might be saved. You know the very famous passage in John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You know again when man was so evil. In fact in Romans 5 when we were yet without strength Paul says Christ died for the ungodly. That's one of the most incredible passages I think of all the New Testament because there we are shown. That while we should have died, while we deserve nothing from God, Christ came and God gave us eternal life. Well, of course, in Ephesians chapter 3, we begin to see this great mystery that Paul begins to elucidate where the Jews and the Gentiles and all of those of the world can come into the church. You know, yesterday we talked about the church. You know, Jesus promised to build his church. He promised to build the church of Christ, if you will. And he said, Upon this rock I will build my church. And that rock we discussed was the great truth that he was the Son of God. And of course, that great promise Jesus fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when he built the church. But you know, in the Old Testament, as God began to prophesy about the church, he did that to the Jews. You remember the old nation of Israel. They were God's chosen people. They were the ones that he had formed out of this ragtag group of slaves that he had brought out of Egypt under the hand of Moses. And they became this great nation of Israel. And to them he gave the covenants. And to them he gave the temple. And to them he gave the priesthood. But the Gentiles, the others, the pagans in the world were left out. But you know God had a plan even there, didn't he? God planned to bring the Jews and all of the world together in Jesus Christ. And of course the Old Testament is really the working out of the beginnings of that great plan. God begins to deal with the patriarchs or the fathers of families. And then he deals with a nation. And then of course the uh, nation of Israel gives way to the tribes of Israel and to Jesus Christ. Who then through whom God begins to deal with the world. And so we're in the Christian age now. God is giving all people, all the uh, races of the world, the chance to be saved. And of course, Paul speaks of that in Ephesians chapter 3. He calls it a great mystery. And by mystery, he doesn't mean something that can't be understood. He doesn't mean something that is, that is difficult necessarily even to understand. But he, reveal, he refers to something that was not revealed until the time was right. And of course, Paul in Galatians 4 says that when the time was right, God sent his son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem those that were under the law. And so the point is this. Paul in Ephesians 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 is preparing the minds of his readers there at the church at Ephesus to understand and to truly appreciate this great plan of salvation for them in Jesus Christ. You know, today we can enjoy that same plan. We can be saved today. We can be saved from our sins. We can have that same relationship with Jesus and with God that they had back in the first century. And, of course, that is a wonderful thing for us today because when we heed the gospel and when we obey the gospel, when we obey the good news of Jesus coming to this world, when we hear it and we believe it and we repent of our sins and we confess Jesus as Lord and Savior and Deity... And then have our sins washed away in baptism we are added to the lord's church we are added to the lord's body we are added to that group of saved that paul was speaking of in ephesians 1 when he said god predestined those in christ to be saved and to be part of heaven with god well we could go on through the book of ephesians and look at the other chapters you know chapter 5 the book of ephesians is a wonderful chapter Chapter 5 speaks of the analogy of the Christ and the church. He speaks there of the husband-wife analogy and gives the parallels. And then in chapter 6, you remember the book of Ephesians speaks of the Christian armor and how that we put on the word of God and other things to keep us strong against the devil. But I want us to look this evening just for a few moments at Ephesians chapter 4. You know, Ephesians chapter 4 is one of those chapters that I think is pivotal in our understanding of the basics. You know, we were talking yesterday about going back to foundational principles. Going back to the basics because it is the basics on which everything is based. Every structure, every career, everything that we do in life has to be based on the basics. You know, if you want to learn piano or you want to learn to uh, do drawing or writing, you have to learn some basics. And I believe the basics for Christian uh, living and even for the church and what it really is is found here at least in part in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 4. Now typically when we preach on this or when we study it we realize that Paul is speaking of the ones. He mentions seven ones in these four short verses. He speaks of the oneness of God's system. And you know that makes sense because really what he's talking about is unity. He's talking about the, uh, the, the, the system that God has created that is uh, complete and cohesive and always holds together. And so then Paul begins to tell us about that system. Now he does that in a very interesting way. He begins, first of all, with relationships in the congregation. You know, the church, of course, is about relationships, isn't it? First of all, the church is about relationships with God. You know, when we were separated from God, we come to God in salvation and through obedience to salvation and the waters of baptism, and we are united. We are at one with God. We are at peace with God. And, of course, once we get into the church and we become uh, a member of the body of Christ, we begin then to work out uh, our differences and our differences in culture and maybe languages and, and other things in the church. And so there's a, there's a point of unity in the church, and, of course, being human, sometimes we, strive, we, str- uh, we, we struggle with that, don't we? Sometimes, you know, we cross crossways with one another. In fact, you know, as I've lived my life and as I've looked around at, you know, various congregations that have had problems, uh, sometimes it is over doctrinal issues. And, of course, doctrine must be maintained at all costs. But many times the difficulties that we experience as Christians in congregations many times stem, at least from my perception, from personal grievances we have with each other. We have personality conflicts, we have difficulties, we're human, we get on each other's nerves, and it's kind of like a family. You know, we, uh, again, sort of picket each other, and sometimes that can even lead to division. Now, I don't want to dwell on that tonight because that's not my main point, and I see no reason here in this congregation, I know of nothing, that I need to speak on about that. But nonetheless, Paul begins with the church at Ephesus, and he tells them, listen, you need to be united because ultimately God is united. And he's going to get to these seven ones, the one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. You know the, you know the seven ones. You've heard them preached on, I'm sure, before. But let's begin in chapter 4, verse 1, and as we like to do, we're going to go expositorily through the first four verses. But Paul says this. He says, I, therefore, the prisoner... Now that sets up then the overall context for the book of Ephesians. Now the book of Ephesians is a book that is called a prison epistle. The Apostle Paul found himself on this occasion in in prison. And he writes the book of Ephesians, the book of Philippians, and probably uh, a couple of other letters as well, Colossians and maybe uh, another letter or so, Philemon to individuals and to churches while he is under house arrest or while he's in prison. And so then he begins to write this uh, letter and he begins to focus upon uh, his own authority and his own situation. And I think he throws this in there to make them understand what he was willing to go through for the cause of Christ. In other words, Jesus was so important to the apostle Paul that he was willing to even go to prison and to death in fact of course tradition tells us that that's exactly what happens most of the apostles except for maybe the apostle john at the end of the first century died through a martyrdom of uh of life because they held on to the tenets of the gospel well paul says listen i'm a prisoner he says i'm a prisoner of the lord And then he says, because of this, or this being who I am and my willingness to dedicate uh, my life to Christ, here's what I want you to do. He says, I beseech you or I beg you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now, you know, the idea of walking is an idea of continuing in something. It's an idea of maintaining a status in something. You know, the gospel of uh, or the epistles of John speak a lot about walking. You remember John for example says that if we walk in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship one with another one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. John speaks of this continual walking and of course in the Greek it's in the continual type tense which indicates that we don't just take a few steps in Christ we have to walk we have to continue walking long term for Christ to be pleased with us. Well Paul says listen You church at Ephesus, I want you to walk in Christ. I want you to walk worthy of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, that would imply, would it not, that it is possible by our lives to walk in an unworthy manner. You know, when we sin and when we live, uh, you know, riotous lives in our communities or we uh, don't uphold the gospel, we in reality are walking in a way that brings shame and reproach upon Christ. And so Paul says, I want you to hold forth the torch of truth and light to your community. I want you to walk daily in the way that you should walk. And I want you to be a good influence to those around you. Now, of course, on a practical level this evening, that's exactly what we are to do as well. We are to go out every day in our walk of life. And we are to shine forth the praises of him who has called us into this glorious light and let others see the light of jesus shine through us you know jesus in the sermon on the mount said let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and not glorify you but glorify your father who is in heaven and so paul begins to remind them that he wants them to walk in christ be strong in the lord and continue in this strong relationship with jesus you know what i think about walking with jesus I think about hand-in-hand, that song, hand-in-hand, we walk each day. Hand-in-hand along the way, walking thus, I will not stray, hand-in-hand with Jesus. You may remember that old song, and it's very picturesque. A path that leads off into perhaps the distant hills, and you with Jesus walking along that road of life, knowing that you're safe, and knowing that you have everything you need spiritually. Because Jesus is by your side, and you have put your hand in his. Now, Jesus won't hold your hand if you want to go. Jesus will not force you to follow him by his side. He'll let you go, and many times we do go astray. But Jesus always has his hands extended, just like he did on the cross, to engulf our hands, engulf us, and bring us back to him. But that's not the point that I want to continue with this evening. I want to go on and see what Paul begins to say. He says, I want you to walk with this calling. Uh, I want you to do it in a worthy manner. And then he says, with all lowliness and gentleness. You know, that's something that all of us need to learn because we live in a rough world. You know, we live in a world where it is dog eat dog. We live in a world where, you know, someone slaps us on the cheek. We want to turn and slap them on the other cheek. You know, that's what Jesus really was dealing with when he said, turn the other cheek. He's talking about being meek and gentle. He's talking about being those who are, uh, you know, unafraid to take abuse upon themselves for the cause of Christ. He says, I want you to walk with loneliness and gentleness. In other words, we don't have to always have it our way. We can defer to others. And, of course, in matters that are not doctrinal, we certainly should defer to others. And then he says, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. The idea of long-suffering is to literally suffer long. In other words, we're patient with others. You remember the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 gave this as one of the characteristics of true love. Love suffers long and is kind. It's patient. It's all of those wonderful characteristics that put others first. So Paul says all of this. Now, why would he say this? Because whether or not there were problems then at the church at Ephesus, Paul certainly knew that people have problems. And he wants to show them that they need to be united and he's going to do that not only by uh, beseeching them with these very emotive sort of arguments, but now he's going to switch and show that God in everything is united. God is a God of unity. God is a God that has a system that holds together very well. God is a God of order. You know, we look at course the universe and we think about the universe and the stars and the planets and how they all work in their orbits you see god did all that god placed order he placed a pattern in the world god is a god of order and that's what paul now is going to address in the spiritual realm as well Well, what does he say he now begins to talk about the church and so he says in verse four he says there is one body and one spirit i'm going to read through down to verse six actually and read this and come back and we'll analyze each of these seven ones. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. Now again, there's seven ones here. There's seven proofs that God's system is united That God's plan of providence is one and that we then should be one as members of Christ's body. But Paul begins and he says, first of all, there is one body. Now what does that mean? What is the body? Well, of course, when we think about the body, we think about Jesus Christ, don't we? And of course, Jesus did have one physical body. But now if we let the text explain the text, what Paul is dealing with here is not the physical body of Jesus Christ... But the spiritual body. You see, when we are baptized, we are baptized into Christ. We become part of His spiritual body, and it is as if we were grafted in to a physical body. But this time, it's a spiritual body. We become one and part and parcel with Christ's body spiritually. Now, in chapter one, Paul says this in verse twenty-two. He speaks of the power of Christ, and he says he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. So let's use that, and let's go back in and plug in what Paul says in Ephesians 4. He says there is one body. Now what is Paul saying? He's saying there is one church. There is one spiritual body of Jesus Christ. Now, I think we need to develop that just for a moment because I think that concept has created a lot of division and misunderstanding, especially amongst the denominational world. Now, of course, when we think of the body, if we think of a large circle, now, of course, the biblical pattern, the biblical paradigm and picture of the one body is that, first of all, there is a one universal body. In Matthew 16, the passage that we looked at yesterday, when Jesus says, I will build my church, he was speaking of the one universal body composed of all the faithful Christians of all time and, of course, to the end of time. That body, though, is composed of faithful congregations. When you look at the New Testament, the Apostle Paul was writing, for example, to the church of Corinth. He wrote to the church at Ephesus. He wrote to the church at Philippi. Now, all of those congregations looked to Jesus as their head. All of them looked to the apostles' doctrine, just like in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the Jerusalem church did. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and they did those things which the apostles, having been guided by the Holy Spirit, laid down. And of course, the biblical paradigm then is that we have this body of Christ, this universal body, Composed of faithful—we want to underscore that—faithful congregations. So, for example, there is hopefully the congregation in Bakersfield on that circle. There's the congregation hopefully at home. We call it 85th and Euclid, our street on that uh, circle. Maybe there's another town, uh, Lodi or something, that would have different—you know—different uh, you know, different, con- different towns with congregations, all of whom are looking to the Bible all of whom are worshiping according to a biblical pattern and that then consists of the one body. And that's what Paul is thinking of. He says there's one body or there's one church. Now, the denominational world, and I think this is where we need to see the distinction, does not look at the one body or the church as being the, the universal church with faithful congregations in it, but they look at the one body as a universal church with denominations in it. So what you do then is you take that big circle and rather than having the little circles of the faithful congregations within it, you then replace that with denominations. And so when you talk to your friends in the religious world, really they will say, you know, we're all headed for the same place, aren't we? We're all going to heaven, we're just going by different roads. I've had people tell me that. In fact, not long ago, I was sitting on the plane and the man said, you know, we all pray to the same God. We were talking about religion. Well, you see, that's the the kind of postmodern I'm okay, you're okay view. It comes out of a division and a denominational mindset of what the church should be. But you know, again, Jesus says there's, he says, or Paul says there is one body. And of course, that one body is not composed of denominations, why? Because those denominations all teach different things. In other words, it would be as if a body had divisions within it. You know, when you look at the denominational world, it is filled with divisions. You've got some denominations that have a headquarters over here. You have some denominations that have a headquarters over here or the other place. You have some that look to this law or some to this catechism, and it's really a religious mess. No wonder people are confused in the religious world today. You know, when Jesus was praying in John 17, Jesus prayed for unity. Why? So that others may believe that his apostles had been said. You see, the, this unity in our religious world tonight is an indication, of course, that something is wrong. Well, you see, when people go back to the New Testament, and of course that's what the churches of Christ have always planned, go back to the Bible, go back to the New Testament. When we go back to the New Testament, And every congregation, whether it's here or whether it is in Kansas City or whether it was back in Ephesus time, go only to the New Testament and see only the New Testament as its pattern and law, then we can have that biblical picture that Paul speaks of. We can have that one body. You know, Paul wrote to Corinth, who was a divided church, and he says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? You know, there were people in that congregation, apparently, who were beginning to have factions or uh, denominations, if you will. They began to follow different individuals. And Paul condemns that. He says, no, the church is one. The body is one. And it is consistent of those who are faithful in their worship, faithful in their lives, who go back to the biblical pattern. So when Paul says there is one body, He's speaking of the one church. He's speaking of the one spiritual body of Jesus Christ. And of course, Jesus had one spiritual body. He had one physical body. In fact, do we not remember that every Lord's Day with the single loaf on the Lord's table as we think about the one body of Jesus Christ? You see, the unity, the oneness is throughout the New Testament system. But Paul says there is one body and then he says there is one spirit. Now what is he speaking of here? Well, obviously he's speaking of the Holy Spirit. Now there's a lot of things we could say about the Holy Spirit and we could perhaps even discuss and maybe even argue over how the Spirit works and it dwells and all of those other little nuanced things. But what does a Spirit do? A Spirit enlivens. A Spirit gives life. In fact, you know, our own bodies have a Spirit, do they not? You know, James makes the argument that the body without the Spirit is dead. And he goes on to say that faith without works is dead. In other words, if you just have a body without a spirit, without some life in it, it's a dead body. Well, the spirit, the Holy Spirit, enlivens the church. Now, without getting into all the nuances of how it interacts with the individual, how does it interact with the church? Well, through the written word. In fact, the Word of God has always been that which the Holy Spirit brought. You know, Peter said that even in the Old Testament, holy men of God were moved along by the Spirit as they wrote and as they gave the things that then would guide God's people back then. And of course, in John 14, 26, John 15, 26, John 16, verse 13, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit to guide the apostles into all truth. And so you see, when Paul says there is one spirit, what he's saying is there's only one source of spiritual life. And that ultimately is going to come through what the spirit revealed, which is the word of God. In other words, any other doctrine, any other teaching that is brought by another spirit, so to speak, is certainly not that which Paul would agree with. In fact, in Galatians, Paul even reprimanded the churches of Galatia about going off for another gospel. And he said, even though we are an angel from heaven, preach another gospel to you and that which we preach, he says, let him be accursed. And so when Paul says there is one spirit, he's saying there is one source for that which enlightens the church and that spirit brings the mind of God. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul speaks of the spirit which knows the mind of God. And he goes on to say that we cannot know what's in the thoughts of another man unless that man reveals it to us. And so it is with God. God, through his Holy Spirit, has revealed it to us, those things that he wants us to know. And so Paul says there's one body and one spirit. And then he says, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Now, in the book of Colossians, Paul speaks of this hope as being found in the gospel. But what is the ultimate hope that we have? Well, the ultimate hope that we have is eternal life with God in heaven. And Paul says there is one hope. We only have one way. You know, Jesus in John 14 said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. And so Jesus is the only way, the only hope of salvation. So again, Paul indicates the unity and the oneness of God's beautiful system. There is one body, one spirit, one hope, and then he says, there is one Lord. Now, of course, when he says Lord here, he means Jesus Christ. He means the authority. Remember the confession Peter made yesterday as we studied that. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That authority that God had bestowed upon Christ Jesus in Matthew 28, 18 said all authority is given to me. That's from God on heaven and in earth. And he says, I have all authority. Well, Paul says that there is, again, one Lord. There is only one with all authority. Now, you know, that's very important. It's important, first of all, personally, as we pointed out yesterday. Because Jesus wants to sit as Lord on the throne of our hearts. You know, many times when we think of Jesus, we see Jesus hanging on the cross. That's a wonderful, beautiful picture. That's a necessary picture because without the shedding of Jesus' blood, there would have been no remission of sins. Sometimes we see Jesus with a basin and a towel, kneeling to wash the disciples' feet. That's a very necessary picture because we see there the humility of the God-man and his lesson to us. But, you know, we often don't like the picture of Jesus as Lord. You see, Paul was living in a day when there were literally slaves. And where the Lord had as master every right to do whatever he wanted to the slaves. Now, Jesus is not a hard taskmaster. In fact, Jesus in his own day said, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Jesus is an easy taskmaster, but he is our Lord. He's not just our friend, although that is true. But he is our Lord. And in the, the times of Paul, when a boss or a, a slave owner or a Lord said something, it meant that individual who was listening had to do it. Well, you know, many times we rebel against our Lord, don't we? We rebel against the Lordship of Jesus. We rebel against Jesus having total control of our hearts. You know, we used to sing the song, Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. You are the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after your will while I am yielding, waiting, and still. And you know, many times we don't like that. You know, we are on, as it were, the the wheel of life. And Christ is wanting to mold us and he's wanting us to lay still what he makes of us a vessel to his glory. And we fight to get off the wheel. We fight so that we can do and be what we want to be and look like what we want to look like. Well, he says there's only one Lord. There were many lords back at that time for the pagans. They had many gods. They had many goddesses. They had many things that they worship. Paul says no. He says there's only one Lord. And then he says there is one faith. And you know, many times when you talk to folks, they'll say, what faith are you? Well, you know, Paul says there's only one faith. Now, when we speak of faith, and I'll have to hurry here, but faith can be used in two ways. It can be used in a subjective way, referring to our own personal faith, our own personal convictions. Or it can be used in an objective way, referring to something outside of ourselves. And I believe that's what Paul is referring to here. When he says there is one faith, what he is speaking of is that body of doctrines. Those things that we must believe in order to be saved. You know, Jude says in Jude verse 3, To earnestly contend for the faith that was once for all time delivered to the saints. You see, what Jude is writing there is he's writing to Christians who had the word of God, the faith, the truth that had been delivered. Once for all, there was not going to be any more. And he says, contend or hold fastly to it in spite of everything that comes your way. Well, Paul says there's only one faith. There's only one system, in other words, by which we can be saved. And yes, it includes the baptism that Jesus taught. And yes, it includes the doctrines of worship. Yes, it includes our holiness of lifestyle. One faith. And then he says there's one baptism. Now very quickly, if you do a study on baptism in the New Testament, it's really quite interesting. Because really, you know, while Paul says there's one baptism, you know you really you can read about more than one baptism in the New Testament? You can read about the baptism of John. You can read about the baptism of Jesus. You can read about Holy Spirit baptism. You can read about the baptism of fire. You can read about the baptism of suffering so what in the world does paul mean when he says there's only one baptism well it is that baptism contextually i think paul will show this over and over not only in his missionary journeys but also in his writings, such as in romans 6 that that one baptism is the baptism immersion in water for the remission of sins you see all of those other baptisms are either obsolete such as john's baptism Or they were things that were never commanded. You know, the baptism of the Holy Spirit was never a command. It was something that was poured out by God on on a couple of occasions to demonstrate the coming of the kingdom, but it was never a command to people. So what is the baptism that was commanded to every single person that was ever saved? All you have to do is read the book of Acts. In every example of conversion, every single one without exception, they were baptized in water for the remission of sins by immersion in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit just exactly like jesus had commanded in matthew 28 just as jesus had said in mark 16 verse 16 when he said he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved you know it really boggles my mind tonight as i talk to a lot of my friends and again i have these discussions over and over about baptism and its necessity or lack thereof. You know Paul says there is one baptism. Now why would Paul even talk about baptism if it were not necessary? You know Peter says in 1 Peter 3:21 that the baptism that we go through, the like figure unto noah, he says, saves us. He says it is not the washing of our bodies as we go under the water, but it is the answer of a good conscience. You know, those old sacrifices in the Old Testament never totally cleanse the conscience. But when we are baptized into Jesus Christ, we have our sins totally taken away because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. He is, as John said in John 1.29, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is the perfect Lamb, the one that every other sacrifice pointed towards. He is the Lamb of God. And so when we are baptized in water for the remission of our sins it is there that we contact the death of christ and it's there that the blood of jesus christ cleanses us from our sins well let's go very quickly and sum up with what paul then continues he says one god and father of all who is above all through all and in you all now he's already spoken of one lord that's jesus he's already spoken of the one spirit that's the holy spirit Now he speaks of God the Father. You see, he speaks of the Godhead. There is oneness in the Godhead. Now, you know, one of the great mysteries of the Godhead or what some people call the Trinity, I tend to shy away from that term because it carries so much baggage. But one of the great difficulties is how can three be one? I don't know. I've tried to figure it out. Theologians have tried to figure it out for 20 centuries. I don't know. But yet there is such unity between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that there is never a disagreement. They are one. They are one in thought. They are one in purpose. They are one in essence. They are one. And so Paul now gets to that third part of the Godhead, God the Father. Can you imagine, can you think of anything more absurd than for Christians or for even a Jew for that matter to say, well, you know, there's a lot of God the Fathers. There's a lot of gods out there. That's polytheism. No, God is one. We are uh, monotheists. And Paul says there is one God. One God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in us all. Now again, he's above all because he has all power. He's the one, again, that came up with a plan. He's the one that sent his son to instigate the plan, the Holy Spirit, to tell about the plan. He is the one God. Anything beyond oneness would be absurd. And he says he's through all and he's in us all. Now I don't take from this that he literally means that we are deity. I don't take from this that he means that we literally have God running around in us. But he means he's in us in his influence. He's in us in the sense that we give our lives to him. And he is in us in the sense that, you know, we espouse his word and we become like him. And so then, the oneness of this great system that Paul deals with in Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 6 is so incredibly evident. Now what's the point? Well, there's a lot of points, really. Because one of the points that he begins with is obviously the point that we should be united amongst ourselves. But the other points are theological. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body. And I think if we look at those things and really study what Paul is saying, we'll see that a lot of the denominational things that we hear simply cannot be true. Now, you know, in Africa and other countries where I go, we spend a lot of time. We're not criticizing our friends that are denominational, but we are tweaking, not tweaking, we are critiquing, rather, the plans that they offer. Because what the church offers, what Jesus offered was simply the word. We want to go back to the word. We want to go back to the principles of the Bible. And probably at this meeting at some point we'll talk about that pattern that God has given us through his word. Well, those are the thoughts this evening. And uh, again, I would encourage you to read the entire book of Ephesians. You can do it within really a few minutes or one evening anyway. It's only six chapters long. It's a great book. And it really gives us the higher thoughts, I think, of Paul on the church and the gloriousness of God's remedial system as found through his son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at...